clock is proclaiming that it's creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. And open the door to join us for the 40th meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm doing an egret dance, Meredith. And I'm mouth part maniac Mike. And we meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. To talk about our favorite animals. While we lack an expertise, we make up for an unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow! So, saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all the kingdom animalia. You're back in the Dalmatian Station! How's it going, Mike? I'm pretty good, Meredith. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Doing very well. Any animal news for us this week? Um, well, I encountered a, another dog in the wild who was very excited to see me. Oh. And the owner told me that she was friendly, but I just kind of kept going. I was very excited to see her. Yeah. I learned about bug bombs like foggers this week. Oh, like the things you put in your apartment? Uh-huh. And like let them do their magic? Uh-huh. Learned about those. Thrilling. I remember we had to do, I very specifically remember this. I don't, I didn't really understand what it was at the time. But when our cat pumpkin had fleas, we had to do like a bug bombs in the house. And I didn't really know what that meant or what it consisted of, but my parents took us to the zoo while it was happening. Did they take you to the insect enclosure? I don't know. I'm sure. I'm sure we hit the whole thing, but. Yeah, I can kind of taste this like, um, I don't know. It's the taste of death, like on my tongue a little bit, like just lingering in the air. It's kind of nice. Man, do you think it worked? Was it for your cockroaches? Um, yeah, I don't even know if that's what the problem bug was. But yes, it, it seems, I don't know. I, I it, Too soon to tell. Too soon to tell. Not enough info. Got it. We had this major um, cockroach problem at work which kind of made no sense like where they would have come from or what because we were on the 45th floor of a huge office building right and it was just they were everywhere in like getting into all the craziest things and we just we just could not get a handle on it um and joe our bug guy came and it was like he shut himself back in the back room where like a bunch of them had like established these colonies and he shut the door, and we had to put up signage, like, nobody go in the back room. And then we went back in there finally, like, after an hour. And it was, like, the most disgusting massacre, cockroach massacre had occurred. They were just dead and dying in various stages of death, like, wriggling all over the floor, just hundreds of them. And so I just had to get that old shot back out and just start... <laughs> Sucking up cockroach carcasses. Quite a dark day in cockroach history. Yeah. <laughs> but considering the long swath of the time they've spent on this earth, it's probably not even a blip. Yeah, for real. And then I guess as an extension of that, I've been thinking a lot about like meta consciousness, you know, like with insects and like cicadas. Uh-huh. Like thinking about how all of these cicadas kind of come out periodically in a way that prevents them from syncing up with the cycles of other creatures and yes. all these sort of like larger issues of hive minds and things like that. So that's right. That's how my weekend animal has been. Oh, metaconsciousness. That's crazy. I have some um, follow-up news about little penguins that actually like popped up on my Instagram feed like right after we talked about little penguins last week. That's fun. And that is, I think we're within a few days of the brand new little penguin exhibit opening at the Cincinnati Zoo. And they actually happen to have the biggest colony of little penguins in North America. Adorable. Isn't that nuts? Yeah, I, I know that penguin exhibit from watching it, you know, on online for the virtual safaris that they've been doing. Uh-huh. 
And then I also have been there, you know, that I went to the zoo just once when I lived in Cincinnati, but I did go to the zoo. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a whole new one compared to the one you saw. Amazing. Yeah. It's going to be in the new exhibit they're calling Rue Valley. Oh, cool. So it's like a kangaroo exhibit. And apparently this is nuts. So they have like these kangaroos and then you walk through the kangaroo exhibit. So you're like. You can be, like, up close with them. Like, the paths, like, wander through actually where the kangaroos are hopping around. Oh. If I'm understanding it correctly. And that's, like, mind-blowing to me. I want to go there immediately. Yeah. And if that wasn't draw enough, apparently. So, the zoo has, like, interesting geography. It's very Cincinnati in that there's, like, lots of hills and valleys and crags and things. But apparently at the top of the hill over Rue Valley is going to be a big beer garden. Of course. (laughs) Of course. I'm like, sign me up. But the zoo is also trying to take all these steps to become, like, super sustainable and, like, the greenest zoo in the country. And so, like, all of the little penguin, um, like, their outdoor beach and their pool is all going to be using 100% recyclable rainwater. Oh. Yeah. So, good for you, Cincinnati Zoo. Yeah. Way to go. Yeah. Keep up the good work. Yeah. I just thought that was fun little follow up to last week's discussion of little penguins. Totally. Well, I mean, do you want to kick it off with I like, should we just get into it with the old taxonomy cheer? Yeah, I think we should. There, there's no need to wait any longer for these creatures we have waiting in the wings. All right. Well, ready? Okay. Taxana you. Taxana we. Taxana who? Taxana me. Kingdom. Animalia. It's not called Fruit Fan Club. Phylum. Arthropoda. They are simply quite numerous. Class. Arachnida. Spiders, scorpions, ticks, and mites. Order. Araniae. Spiders. Shout out to the Kiss of Spider Woman. Family. Theosphodidae. Tarantulas. Genus. Gramostola. They live in South America. Species. Rosea. The Chilean rose tarantula. The most likely species of Hollywood spider star Barry. The second I heard tarantula, I was like, we better be talking about Barry. Yeah, we're talking we're talking about Barry. You know, it's funny because the jumping off point for this is that spiders also are this calicerata with the horseshoe crabs and the scorps that we've talked about before. Yes. And so I was like, well, what spider should I do? And I Googled what species of tarantula was speech featured in the film Home Alone to support my thesis that Kevin McAllister was never home alone. He was mm-hmm. there with Barry, the tarantula. I love. <laughs> and so I read the species of tarantula featured in the film has for years been presumed to be the Chilean rose tarantula since the species is frequently used in movies because of its compliant nature and wide availability. So I was like, great, let's read more about the Chilean rose tarantula. Their compliant nature. Interesting. It's very fun. We have the kingdom animalia, phylum arthropoda, and then the subphylum, as I said, the calicerata, which is the scorpions, horseshoe crabs. On spiders, the calicera are not pincers as they are on the scorpions, and they're not Mm -hmm. locomotory organs as they are on the horseshoe crabs. They're sensory organs. Okay, cool. I ended up not really going that much into more info on that, on the specifically the calicerata of the tarantulas. So this is a opportunity for a further line of inquiry. Sure. Then we get to the class, the arachnida, the spider scorps, ticks, and mites. Ticks are also the arachnida, which I thought was interesting because of these mouth parts. Oh, yeah. The calicerata thing is interesting, like the evolution of the calicerata. I feel like I have a rich vein of inquiry. Yeah. Main vein of inquiry. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, get on that main vein. So then we have the order Arania, the spiders, are air breeding arthropods that have eight legs, calicerae with fangs that are generally able to inject venom, and spinnerets that extrude silk. Ooh, yes, yes. They are the largest order of arachnids and rank seventh in total species diversity among all orders of organisms. Wow. It's in, it's kind of intense. They're worldwide, every continent except Antarctica. They've become established in nearly every habitat, with the exception of air and sea colonization. <laughs> which, like, I just want to talk about flying spiders for a second. I know it's terrifying. Air and sea colonization. Thank goodness that is not. Whew. There are over forty-eight thousand recorded spider species and over one hundred and twenty families. 
there's definitely been some dissension within the scientific community. Uh, you know, when we start talking insect taxonomy, we definitely start talking dissent. Uh-oh. I think of the tarantula as this kind of like these big hairy spiders. Right. So that's the infraorder, my gallomorphe, which means shrew-shaped. Megale is shrew and morphe is shape. And these are mostly heavy-bodied, stout-legged spiders, including tarantula, Australian funnel-web spiders, mouse spiders, and trapdoor spiders. And then at the family is where we get into true tarantulas. <sighs> False tarantulas are other members of this infraorder, but members of the family, they're a phocidae, I believe. They're large, they're hairy, they're tarantulas. There's about a thousand species currently identified. Now we get to the genus, Gramostola. These are South American tarantulas. First described in 1892 by somebody with three first names, Eugene Lewis Simon. Like Craig Martin. Exactly. They're medium to large spiders, and they're tropical, South America-loving, usually brown, pinkish, orange-red hairs. There's 21 species. And then our species, Rosea. The Gramostola rosea is probably the most common species of tarantula available in America and Europe pet stores today. This is due to the large number of wild-caught specimens exported cheaply from their native Chile. And they can also be from Bolivia and Argentina. Got it. Don't cry for me, rosy spider. Uh, and the insects kept rolling in. da 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 <laughs> Okay, so at this point in my research, I read the second half of the sentence where it was postulated that Barry is actually a Costa Rican zebra tarantula. Uh Uh-oh. Because of his orange web spinnerets and striped legs clearly visible on his legs throughout the film. So, I mean, I guess I could have gone into the Costa Rican zebra tarantula, but I had already done this research and I was kind of committed and there's simply more information about the Chilean rose tarantula. That That's fine. So females can live about 20 years. They may live longer. We don't actually know. There's frequently confusion between the Gramostola rosea and the Gramostola porteri, which is the Chilean tarantula. And some argue that many of the Spiders that are sold as Gramostola rosea in the pet trade are actually Gramostola porteri. Is this some of the descent you, you were mentioning? I think this is different than the descent. I think that this is more just like if you're selling a tarantula to somebody and they don't know and they're like, that's a, clearly a tarantula. Like if you get the species wrong. Yeah. You know, is uh, is that going to actually affect your sale? I think it's Probably more- not. I think most people go into it being like, I want a tarantula. I want one of those big hairy spiders. It's not like, ooh, I want that rose tarantula. Right, right. Since I was a seven-year-old child, I've dreamed of owning my own terrarium with a rose tarantula in it. I said Chilean rose tarantula, and this is just a Chilean tarantula. Words matter, people. Yeah. So the Chilean rose tarantula likes a desert or scrub region in northern Chilivia. <laughs> in northern Chile. Again, also Bolivia and Argentina. They were previously thought to be wanderers in nature, but large numbers have been observed living in burrows in their natural habitats. Generally, they don't burrow in captivity, and they're typically active in the evening or at night. So we get to use our word crepuscular. I love it. So what do they eat? Well, they eat lots of things. We have grasshoppers, we have crickets, we have moths, beetles, cockroaches, mealworms, small lizards, and mammals. When they are kept as pets, the best food is crickets that have been gut-loaded on vegetables, Mm. as this is the best source of hydrated nutrition for the tarantula. So I want to talk about the term gut-loaded on vegetables. (laughs) Me too. Which is how I felt at times recently. Yeah, I spent 17 years doing that. Oh, I love veggies. Me too. I've been having these really great vegetable meals because I've been getting this farm share box that I'm sure I've told you about. Yes. Last night we had the banginest fried eggplant pasta sausage experience. It was so freaking good. Like, I am here for all the cooking that has been done on account of this here quarantine. I agree with you. I've been eating more vegetables and just straight up like home cooked meals with real food than ever and it's 
really nice. You're feeling like a cricket that has been gut loaded on vegetables. Absolutely. As well as other things like a lot of pasta and delicious breads and cakes that I've made and all kinds of fun things. Well, right on. Speaking of fun things, let's talk about tarantula <laughs> fucking. That does sound fun. There's not a lot about the kind of mating rituals, but the, it has been bred in captivity for years, either for research purposes or trade. And it says that the females profit from a cooling period of a few months preceding the introduction of a male for mating. Okay. And then once the male has reached sexual maturity, he'll create a sperm web before he's introduced to the female's terrarium. How does he know he's about to be introduced? I mean, I don't know. I I think maybe he has to make the sperm web and then he's introduced. I'm kind of confused about this sperm web thing. <laughs> and then he'll, once he's introduced to the female's terrarium, he'll approach the burrow with caution, tapping and vibrating his legs to attract her out of her shelter. At the opportune moment, he will lunge himself forward and using his hooks, hold the female's chalicerae, pushing his mate into a vertical position, giving him access to the female's epigene, which are the external genitalia. Okay. The male will then insert one or even both the left and the right petty palp <laughs> into the female's epigene and injects the fertilizing fluid. In the weeks following fertilization, the female produces a large egg sac, which usually contains about 500 spiderlings. Oh, is that the technical term? I mean, it's just what it says. I don't really know. Spiderlings? Spiderlings. So, uh, you know, intriguing. I'm now intrigued by spider sex. So I have to learn more about that. Yes. Is this our first spider? That's a great question. I think it might be. Yeah. I don't know that we have done any spiders yet. Which is crazy. <laughs> that's the spider. Uh, that's the spider truthers calling us to. Sure is. Okay. Well, I have a PSA. Okay. In February 2009, a British man was treated for a tarantula hair lodged in his cornea. Ooh. And the man was cleaning his pet Chilean rose tarantula's tank. And the articulating hairs were thrown from the spider and lodged into his eye. And so medical authorities urge you to wear protective eyewear when handling the Chilean rose spider. Now this makes me think about Barry and when he was just casually tossed onto the face yes. of Daniel Stern. Yes. That in fact, what was causing him the most danger was not the fangs, but the articulating hairs. So these articulating... Are you saying articulating or articulating? Er, it's spelled U-R-T-I-C-A-T-I-N-G. Articulating. Interesting. Okay. Articulating. Like er, the oldest known musical instrument that was destroyed in a bombing of Iraq at some point in right. the 21st century. Of course. Um, okay. Articulate. And they like throw these hairs as a defense? Is that? Yes. And they have different lengths and different styles of hairs that are believed to be targeted to different predators. So they like number the hairs with Roman numerals and the <laughs> different ones are for different creatures. It's quite severe. Whoa. I'm going to throw my long blonde hair at this bitch giraffe. Yeah. There's a giraffes in Chile. What am I talking about? Yeah, I think it's more for, like, small mammals. I don't think giraffes would care about tarantulas. They just kind of, like, wouldn't even notice them. Yeah, probably. Have to be a bigger spider than that to get noticed by a giraffe. Am I wrong? <laughs> Am I right? <laughs> wow, that's crazy. Different different hairs for different... Scares. How cute. Do you have any tarantula questions or queries? I, I don't know. You know, I really haven't contemplated them much, but all of this talk has reminded me... That in my second grade classroom, I really had, like, the most badass second grade teacher. She, like, played guitar with us. She was real goofy. She's, like, every 10 days, Zero the Hero, which was, like, this furry little, like, gopher puppet would come out. And we would celebrate the fact that it was the 10th day. Anyway, she had... She had a tarantula in the classroom named Harry. Oh. And we fed Harry crickets. And... Yeah, I don't know that we did much more than that, but 
in retrospect, that's like so badass that your second grade sweet teacher would have a tarantula in the classroom and be taking care of like cleaning that cage and hopefully wearing eye coverings and feeding it crickets all the time. Like I would be so squeamish to do that. Yeah. Vegetable gut loaded crickets and protective goggles, the tarantula essentials. I know. <laughs> tarantula essentials kit. Yeah, I will say, though, that hair is a misnomer. Mm. It, they are not actually hairs. It's a different structure, and I'm not quite sure what they're made of. I, I very casually looked that up and didn't immediately find an answer. Wouldn't it be funny if they were, like, horse hair? <laughs> yeah, they were couture, yeah. like badger hairs. That was the thing, the different hairs for different scares Mm -hmm. (laughs) it's like the badger hair is for insects and the boar's hair is for mammals Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. absolutely yeah that's so fun i haven't you know sweet tarantulas i haven't thought about them in far too long yeah their soup's cute you know they are they're fun yeah all right well let's uh take a break sure hey freddie how's your week been pretty frustrating dinah What's got you down? My anal scent gland is just so active, and it's constantly ruining my slacks that I have to wear for my job as a paralegal at Bovide, Anura, and Marmot. Whoa, Freddie. First of all, congrats on securing a good job at a prestigious law firm at such an uncertain time. Thanks, Dinah. I love it there. The best part is I never have to carry a briefcase. Right. They have the Marmots do that. Yeah. Those tiny hands are so facile. Well, anyway, Freddie... Have you heard about Badger Briefs, the new underwear for muscle lids by Brand Clubby? I haven't, but that sounds like something that could help me. Can Badger Briefs handle the extreme undergarment needs of the muscle lid community? Naturally! I mean, it feels obvious since Brand Clubby is known for its high quality standard. And Brand Clubby has been exploring some dank collabs with such illustrious designers as Walter Warthog, Geraldo Giraffe, and Marcel Marmot. Amazing! How do Badger Briefs underwear for mustelids help mustelids specifically? The high-density polymer-wound fibers are stank-resistant, and the special Badger Gusset allows freedom of movement. This is so thrilling. Plus, Brand Clubby is giving a new product discount of 20%. If you use code EXPRESS20 at checkout. That's easy to remember because I have to express my anal glands every week. I'm going to pick up mine today. Meredith, it's been a while since we've done the Internet Pet Product Reviews. I know. I didn't realize how much I missed this until I actually started looking through pet products. It's very fun and pretty silly. I agree. Um, Well, I want to share with you this product that I saw today. I went to Google and I said, what's the best cat scratcher? (laughs) And according to Cat Life Today, the best cat scratcher is the Pet Fusion Ultimate Cat Scratcher Lounge. Ooh, lounge. (laughs) Yeah. So it's kind of like almost infinity shaped. It's like they made an oval of cardboard and smushed the top and like it and laid it horizontal and then like smushed. I know. Yeah. So it creates a sort of bed. I know this. I picked one five star review from Janie who says, this is amazing. I bought mine over a year ago and my cats love them. I have two cats. One we got as a kitten in July 2014 and she has been just fine keeping her claws because of this product. I really hoped not to have to declaw her, and the product is amazing. It's worth the money. She picked up some L brackets at home to hang them on the wall, and it worked like a charm. And she included a photo, and it's very cute. And then we have Ivan, who's given us a one-star review. Uh-oh. Cheap and compressed cardboard is all this is. Would not recommend as it also leaves the cardboard pieces everywhere. I already vacuum every morning, and by afternoon, there's more cardboard pieces all over. <laughs> Save your money and buy something else. Ooh, Ivan sounds very persnickety. Yeah, I don't know about vacuuming every morning. Dude. That sounds crazy. Glad I don't live below you, Ivan. Yeah, maybe you shouldn't have cats, Ivan. Calm down, Ivan. If they're so dirty. Yeah, he also got it in slate gray, and Janie got it in walnut brown. So I think that's probably speaks to their personality differences. Right. That says everything. 
I too have a cat toy. This is the Whisker City Pickle Cat Toy. A five-star reviewer just titled their review Crazy Cat. They say, we have a kitten. My daughter likes pickles. Naturally, she'd see this and have to get it. The kitten went nuts over it, and it was hilarious. He then crashed into a crazy, heavy sleep. That sounds like a happy cat with their pickle catnip toy. Yeah. This is like a catnip toy that's shaped like a pickle. Yeah, it looks like a pickle. It's like green and fuzzy, and it's got catnip on the inside. And it's, it's like a good size for the cat to be able to grab and like carry around if it wants. So this reviewer, a one-star review, said it was great while it lasted. I bought this cat toy for my cat's birthday. They loved it. Maybe a little too much because after maybe 12 hours, it had a hole in it and the catnip came out. Maybe they played with it too rough. IDK. But this should definitely be considered when making cat toys. Well, my cats were having fun with it for a little bit and that's what matters to me. Just disappointed in the item that it could not even be used for too long. I... Yeah, Hmm. definitely a possibility, but there are cat toys out there that are kind of destructive proof. We've had them. There's like a brand that makes like, they're like fruit. There's like bananas filled with catnip, lemon filled with catnip, and they're just sewed like super tough. So there's no, they're like made of canvas. Hmm. So there's no Hmm. butt breaking into that. I mean, I don't know. It's just like, feels like that was more of a three-star review than a one-star review. That's what I have to say. I know. Oh, it seemed that seemed very strong. It's either all or nothing for that person. Yeah, I guess. Okay, well, so my next animal pet product is I I did a similar tactic where I googled best aquarium decorations. <laughs> yeah. And Pet Life Today says the Marina Decor Poly Resin Cave Medium is the best. And so our five star review is from C Smith, five out of five stars. C says. It is the same size as three quarters of a five pound bag of flour turned on its side. (laughs) Nice amount of material used so it is sturdy and not a brick. The color variations well done. The end of the plants do stick through about a half an inch but are well to the sides and coated. And then Steve gave it a one out of five star and he says, Pioses look like a six year old hot glued it together. Arrived broken. Pioses look like a six year old hot glued it together. He doesn't even know how to spell pieces. He spells pieces like a six-year-old gluing something together. Yeah, exactly. So I don't trust trust Steve's review. Definitely not. (laughs) Okay, I'm actually kind of in the same vein here. So I've collected reviews from the Zoo Med Turtle Dock Aquatic Floating Turtle Dock. Okay, first review. Really good product. I have three red ear sliders, one yellow belly, one red belly, and one chicken turtle. All of them love their turtle docks. I have three. You must make sure you buy the right size, because if not, your turtles will sink the dock if it's too small. Recommended only for baby to young turtles. For adults, you'll definitely want to think about trying something else, because he will most likely outgrow it. Perfect for my turtles! Whereas this next person, where it's just an emoji frown face, they have the opposite opinion. I have three turtles, and all of them despise this product. They are either all very gravitationally challenged or the product just isn't made well. Every time any of them gets on top of it, they either fall off or are too busy trying to balance to actually enjoy it. I was looking forward for a nice item that my turtles could enjoy basking on. Instead, I got an algae magnet that my pets justifiably fear. I would not recommend this by any means. An algae magnet? All three of them despise this product. Wow. So those are some strong words about the Zoo Med Turtle Dock Aquatic Floating Turtle Dock. I have to say <laughs> I like the play on Club Med. Yes, me too. Zoo Med. Very cute. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm kind of curious if how the turtles actually feel about it. I feel like this owner might be projecting. It seems like a lot. Like if they're always trying to get on top of it, then I don't know that we can say that they despise it. Or fear it. I just think they're trying to make it work. Right. Maybe it's a, yeah, it's like an enrichment activity. Like if it was easy, they'd be, they wouldn't be engaging with it. Right. Exactly. Well, that is this week's batch of animal product reviews. Yippee.
Texana you. Texana we. Texana who. Texana me. Kingdom. And Amelia. Yeah, we get it. Phylum. Cordata. It's time for talking spines. Class. Reptilia. Tongues like dingle hoppers. Order. Squamata. Scales are really in this season. Family. Varanidae. Big ass lizards. Genus. Varanus. Monitor lizards got their eyes on you. Species. Varanus komododensis. If you like stocky boys, just call 1-800-Komodo-Dragon. Meredith, can you repeat that phone number? I'm going to have to write that down again. It's 1-800-Komodo-Dragon. I got it. (laughs) Oh, man. These guys are disgusting. (laughs) Yeah, I have to say that, like, uh, what I know about them, I don't like. Yeah, they're pretty um, savage. They're pretty intense, and they are really kind of ruthless and crazy but let's just dig into it so um just a quick tax facts recap so reptilia obviously i said they have tongues like dingle hoppers because remember how in little mermaid she named the fork a dingle hopper yes how could i forget (laughs) so we've got these forked dingle hopper tongues um order squamata Fan favorite here at the Animal Fan Club. Yeah, Squamata Fermata in my heart always. You're right. <laughs> Squamanes, wigs for your Squamata. Scales are really in this season. So we're talking like lizards and snakes with their scales. Yes. And then family, the Varanidae. So this is when we get into like huge lizards. Just okay. lizards on the larger side. Sure. And then genus, Varanus. So this is monitor lizards specifically. Okay. And... And then finally down to the Komodo dragon. And so the Komodo dragon is actually the largest living species of lizard. So they're like the biggest of the squamanes or the squamates. (laughs) (laughs) They wear the biggest squamanes. Yeah, they're the largest size of squamanes that extant squamanes, which are, of course, the wigs for squamates for those that aren't hip to... (laughs) All of Brand Clubby's offerings. Right, exactly. And actually, this is very interesting. This species wasn't, I think, I'm going to put discovered in big, like, swish, 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 quotation marks, air quotes here, because I'm sure that there were indigenous peoples that had some awareness and knowledge of this creature. Probably most likely to stay the fuck away from them. Right. But when it comes to, like, you know, Westerners coming to the East and, quote, unquote, discovering these creatures, that didn't happen until, like, 1910. And it wasn't officially added to the full, like, taxonomy until 1912. Interesting. Because these guys really only inhabit four islands in this, in southern Indonesia. So... It's four islands, including Komodo Island itself, after which the dragon was named. I see. And I think, I don't know if this is necessarily the case now, but I think some of these islands are largely uninhabited, which could also explain, you know, some of the reason why this, like, quote-unquote discovery happened so late. Because there's just so many little islands in Indonesia writ large that um, it would be hard to, like have a full catalog of every creature on every one of them. I have encountered the term described as in the species was first described in, meaning in, in instead of saying when it was discovered, quote unquote, right, it, which I find to be a useful term for these types of things, because surely this creature has been known about, especially something that big and right. this gross yeah you know surely it was known that's why those islands are uninhabited because the big death (laughs) lizard lives there you know probably yeah and even described could still it's definitely a better way to say that as opposed to discovered but even described it's probably described in some annals of indigenous folklore or you know right document somewhere so right right but yeah described is definitely a better way to say it for sure Let's just talk about some of these looks, Komodo looks. Why are they so terrifying? Um, Some of that could just be located in their appearance. So they can reach up to like 10, being 10 feet long. 
and weighing up to 150 pounds, though there have been some that weigh up to um, 300 pounds, which is... That's more than I weigh, and I'm not small. Right. But I was thinking, I was like, 10 feet long, 150 pounds, that's actually some, like... It's pretty skinty, right? Yeah, but it's all muscle. Yeah. And it's it that's like skinty for a human, you know? Right. That's like a bit of like an Ichabod crane type frame. <laughs> yeah, totally. But I imagine a lizard is less bone and less angst and more muscle. Yeah. Less angst. I don't know. There's some angst there, I would say, as we'll learn. But a lot of this, I should say, a lot of this, like, 10 feet, up to half of that is all tail. So they've got this long, whippy tail. And they can actually, like, Fun. cause some damage just by whipping that tail around, whipping their tail back and forth, you know. Would you say that it's a what? A wet-ass tail? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's a whippy-ass tail. A whippy-ass tail. That's what it is. <laughs> it's a real what. They also have these kind of, I talked about scales being really in this season. These guys have this look down. They've got these scales. Um, they're like armored scales, kind of. It's this skin, these bumpy skin things, but they actually contain little tiny bones. So they're called like osteoderms. So osteo pertaining to bone, derm pertaining to skin. So they've got like these little osteoderms um that kind of act like chain mail to protect their bodies because i'll tell you these guys get scrappy with each other and with whatever food that they're trying to take down so they've kind of got this armor on their body and it really ossifies with age but when i'm looking at these guys and i see these osteoderms and just their skin collectively it looks too loose on their bodies so they just look like they're in these like weird armor sacks. They're like the Sharpays of the reptile world. Fun. I saw a really cute Sharpay doggy. It was like a puppy the other day in the park. Oh, I used to call them wrinkly pantyhose dogs when I was little. Sure. I can see why. Because, yeah, because I just remembered being younger and like always having to wear like tights and them being so wrinkly and finding that to be just like the worst feeling. Sure. Think about being a, a Sharpay, the dog, or a, a Komodo dragon with your loose pantyhose on all the time. Oh, terrible. Okay. So I also can't get over how doofy these guys look with the way their legs are attached to their bodies. So if you can, like, kind of picture the Komodo dragon, the body itself just being a big, long tube right? That like terminates at the tail at the end. Uh huh. And then the legs, the way they look like they're like right angles and they're just stuck perpendicular to the body. So you've got this like long tube and then these right angles that come out perpendicular from the body. And so when they run, they've got these like wide shoulders and they like fling their whole bodies back and forth and their legs like flip out and they look so stupid. Yeah. It's almost like a joke. It's like it, how it, you would, it's like if you were like held together with tape, you know, and you had to like navigate across the floor. Yeah. It's like the silliest thing watching them run. And it's almost like, it makes me feel better because they're so vicious and there's so many things about them that I haven't even discussed yet that just make them like such apex predators and so effective. But then you watch them run and you're like, oh, look at that idiot. <laughs> right. They're scary, and then they start running, and you're just like, you're a doof dude. (laughs) Exactly. But what's actually kind of terrifying is they can run up to 12 miles per hour. I can't run that fast. I mean, I think there are people like, what does it top out at as far as, like, humans? It's, like, 13, right? It's, like, something like that. Um, I think that the fastest sprinters in the world are somewhere around 25 miles per hour for like a hundred meters. Oh, oh wow. I was way off. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, 12 miles per hour. I can't run that fast. I'm like lucky if I'm doing six. I think the world record marathon times are around two hours. So that might be where you have. Yeah. The world record marathon currently is two hours, one minute and 39 seconds. Okay. So, yeah, so over for a marathon, it's about 13 miles an hour, but yes. Got it. Okay. So, well, regardless, these guys could get up to 12 miles per hour, which I 
uh, that blew my mind, especially seeing like how laborious it looks for them to move. <laughs> it's, it's, the fact that they can do it that quickly is like, yeah, damn. And they can actually, when they're younger, they can't do this when they get older and bigger, but they can climb trees too. So it's just like crazy. So a little bit more about their appearance and kind of what they're packing. Um, they've got these forked tongues that I mentioned. And they just kind of stick these. They like wag, they waggle their heads back and forth. And they just stick their tongues out. And those tongues can actually detect particles in the air. And so that's how they smell. And they can detect carrion like two to five miles away. Whoa. Which is that's insane. Like, that's insane. Being able to smell. That would be like us here or me here in Manhattan being able to, like, smell some, like, halal cart, like, way down at the tip of the island. And I'm up in Harlem. Yeah, it's so crazy. You think there's just so many other scents interfering that would be overpowering, but they can just really identify that scent of delicious dead thing. Right. They just pull it right out of the air. It's so crazy. And I was watching all these videos about stuff like this. And I just have to take a moment to talk about the prevalence on like nature shows, especially things on like animal planet of like animal show bros. You know what I'm talking about? These like men, sometimes they've got like dreadlocks, but they're pretty much always wearing like earth tones and like cargo shorts. And they're just like real like rugged, like broy type bro faces. Right. You're unsure of what they do except just go out in nature and know things. Right. Or kind of like provoke and bug animals in some cases. Affirmative. Like there was this whole thing with these people. It was just this group of guys in khaki colored everything just fucking around with these Komodo dragons, just kind of not provoking them, but it's like Pretty much by being around them, especially when they're feeding, which is like super aggressive time for Komodo dragons. It's just a bad position to be putting yourselves in. A Komodo dragon makes a kill of a little deer. Oh, dear. And then that scent gets picked up by all the other Komodos in the area. Mm. And so these guys are like, oh, here comes another one. Here comes another one. And they're actually like picking up on the dude's scent. So they're coming after the dudes and they're like running away. And I'm like, just get out, like leave them alone. We don't need, we, there's plenty of Komodo videos out there. We don't need to see you like flex nut by having a close call with a fucking like death dragon. Anyway. I mean, I think that what you're speaking out against is this like alpha chad culture of like, well, I'm so extreme, you know, look at how extreme I am. Like, well, I can, well, it's so crazy. It's like I read somewhere that there's so many people that are climbing Mount Everest that the actual summit is a traffic jam. Yeah. Because, you know, you can only summit at particular times and you have to kind of like abide the weather. Mm -hmm. So people will be camped out and then it's a clear day and all of a sudden everybody's summiting Mount Everest and there's like 50 people up there with you. And it's actually dangerous. It's so crowded. It's more dangerous. Right. (laughs) As if it wasn't dangerous enough. Right. Well, it's and people who are not experienced in that uh, or who don't know enough about it are just kind of like adventure seeking for, you know, social media likes. Right. Exactly. We can start talking about some other things that just make these guys so terrifying. Um, So they've got these teeth, right? These like serrated teeth. So they're kind of like a bread knife, a serrated bread knife for those of you who are familiar. And they can inflict a lot of damage. So they like to feed on um, carrion, like I said, so stuff that's already dead. But they'll take down, like, pigs, goats, cows, deer, all those things. It's They'll kind of run up underneath them and take them down, like, via the belly or kind of reach up and grab them by the neck and take them down. Um, and then they just kind of rip away at the flesh Or they'll try to consume it whole, which it's like, geez, slow down, you guys. Like, no one's going to take it away from you. But that's actually not true. Yeah, they're going to take it away from each other. I know. Because, like, once that smell of death hits the air, all of the other Komodo dragons come running, literally. And then they're just going to fight over it. Everything is kind of 
uh, structured via size. So like the biggest lizards are going to get the most and they're going to get to eat the most and they'll just full on like take it away from the little guys. But through all of this eating and all through all this fighting for food, their gums are always essentially in a state of bleeding. Like the way their mouths are set up, the way their teeth are shaped, they're just, there's always blood in their mouths. Like their mouths are always bleeding. So you see close-ups of these lizards and there's just always this like ooze of red drool like hanging out of their mouths. But it's their blood? It's their own like gum blood. Gum blood? It's gum blood. That's disgusting. If they weren't scary enough, they're always just oozing blood from the mouth. Like, come on. They're so bloodthirsty that they create their own thirst quencher. Yes. Like, they're so ravenous, too, that they say they're trying to swallow something whole and they can't get it down fast enough. They will literally slam the carcass that's in their mouth up against a tree to shove it down their throat faster. Are you serious? Yes. It's like, hold on, dude. Just chew your food. Chew? Just chew. Chill out. It's it's really crazy. And they can eat up to 80% of their body weight. And they can also breathe while eating. So it's like, keep these guys away from your buffet because they will put you out of business. Did you ever see the movie The Road to Wellville? Oh, that sounds familiar. It's about Kel, you know, Kel, the whatever his name, Kellogg, the dude that we know from cornflakes. Yes. Like cornflakes were invented. And the idea was that if you eat cornflakes, you won't feel the need to masturbate. This was a sort of like wellness oh, sanitarium yeah. thing. I remember. And they, yeah. they used to sing, they sang this song, choo, choo, choo. That is the thing to do. Choo, choo, choo. Good food is good for you. Choo, choo, choo. That is the thing to do. Choo is the right thing to do. And I'm thinking that maybe the Komodo dragons should learn that song. They should learn that song because, man, they are not doing that. Interestingly, they have some relationship to the owls in that they will kind of regurgitate these gastric pellets, um, which contain like horns and hair and teeth and just other things that they don't want to worry about digesting. Sure. The keratin. Yeah. All that stuff. Just terrifying. And to top all of this off, they have a venomous bite. Why not? Of course they do. As if the bloody mouths and the crazy claws that they have and just the brute force that they have and their serrated teeth. As if that wasn't all enough. Enough nightmare fuel. They're venomous. And so it's... It's like, a, I guess it's similar to like a snake venom because they are related to snakes. But I watched this experiment where this guy like took his own saliva or took his own mouth and bit into like a leg of beef. And then he also took a leg of beef and kind of spread it with this Komodo dragon venom. And within three days, this venom had completely like liquefied that carcass. That's so disgusting. I know. Whereas, like, the one the guy had bit into, you couldn't even tell that he had bit into it. Because, like, our saliva does contain enzymes, too, to help break down food, but not to this extent. It's crazy. That's disgusting, Meredith. I'm sorry. I know. It's so much. It's so much. Not to lizard shame here. So, where is the tenderness here? Where is the Komodo love? So there's really not much love even in the love making. <laughs> not shocked. Not shocked. So the men will scrapple with each other for attention, for female attention. The loser gets pinned to the ground. And then often like the two males will like vomit or defecate pre-fight, you know, just to get all those, get those butterflies out. Yeah, same. You know, <laughs> Um, And so once the winner has pinned the loser to the ground, it'll flick his tongue at the female to see if she's into it. But turns out she's like never really into it. Like the ladies are always like, oh, God, I don't want to do this. So they're very aggressive towards their future mates and they try to fight him off. And he, too, will pin her down to insert one hemipene into her cloaca. <laughs> yep, some cloaca hemipene action. Yes, but not after a long, drawn-out fight. 
some vomiting and defecation. Yeah. Wow. And so generally 20 eggs per clutch. They incubate up to eight months. And baby Komodos actually have to, um, I mentioned that they climb trees, but they have to kind of hang out up there um, until they're largely mature because they have to avoid the cannibalistic adults, cannibalistic Komodo dragons that will just eat them too. Do the mothers dote on them when they're in the trees or is it kind of one of those like once you're born? It's, yeah, they're, you know. I don't know. I'm assuming probably not. I couldn't, there wasn't anything about that in my research, but sure, that is very interesting. And so even when these little guys have to go down to feed, like at one of those carrion kills, they try to like cover themselves in like um, bad smelling things to deter the people from, or the people, the other dragons from eating them when they're down trying to feed themselves. It's just such a dog eat dog world. <laughs> Out there for the Komodo dragons. Yeah. I don't know, man. That sounds like too much for me, if I'm honest. Yeah, like, it's really a lot. You should probably stay away from them because they will come after humans. There's like a long list of things on Wikipedia about human attacks, even deaths. So they are not to be messed with. <laughs> I'd also make a terrible Komodo dragon. I would too. I would so not be into it. Yeah, no way. Any questions? Uh, no, I don't know. I Reflections. I'm kind of surprised that there's so many in a clutch because they're so big. I guess that I was thinking maybe it would be like just a few in a clutch, you know? Yeah. I did read the statistic that 10% of the diet of Komodo dragons is other Komodo dragons. Throughout their life, that's true? I guess. That's insane. This is Wikipedia, so I'm not sure. The veracity of that. But 10% of their diet is cannibalized Komodo dragons. Yeah. On my subject of metaconsciousness earlier, like, this is not, that's not good. That's a bad design. Bad design. But maybe that's why there's so many Aggies in a clutch is that, like, 10% of them will, or no, that's not the way that math would compute. But a percentage of them, based on the amount of baby Komodos in adult Komodos diets are going to be sacrificed for the cause. Wild. It is wild, Mike. Do you need do you need to recover? Do you need to take a break? Yeah, I'm going to go spit some blood <laughs> out and vomit um, and then get into a fight and then eat my babies. <laughs> day in the life. That's a slow Tuesday. Day in the life, yeah. All right, break time. Break. Jimmy, put your shoes on. And Miranda, don't forget your soccer ball again. Wow, Mom. It must be tough keeping a busy bat household like yours running. How do you manage? What? Who are you? I'm just your friendly voiceover lord, here to dole out backhanded compliments to make you feel lesser than as a mother, so I can more effectively sell you and other bat mothers like you convenient fixes. Oh, yeah? Well, what could I possibly need right now other than punctual children? Miranda! Jimmy! Come on! We're going to be late! We still have to swing through Old McDonald's Barn drive through for your lunches! For starters, I know you are a bat mom that just needs a few extra minutes. What if you didn't have time to make that extra stop to get the kids fed? Wouldn't it be great if they could eat on the go? I mean, yes, of course, that would be very helpful. But in case you missed it, we're vampire bats, Mr. Voiceover Lord. Live blood sources aren't exactly portable. But what if I were to tell you that blood on the go can be just as fresh and nutritious as blood from the source? With Brand Clubby's new offering of High B, Blood Boxes for Bats. Uh, what? You heard correctly, Mama Bat. These easily portable boxes of blood are packaged at peak freshness in our patented Stay Fresh Thermal Box technology. All your kiddos need to do is simply sink their teeth straight into the box's clearly marked puncture zone, and they will be riding an iron wave of flame. But my kids are so picky about trying new things. You know how us bats are famously stuck in our ways. Not to worry, Mama Bat. Between our original Bloody Blast flavor and new flavors, including Sangra Splash and Crimson Crush, your little bloodsuckers are sure to find a taste they'll love. Okay, Mr. Voice Overlord, you've piqued my interest. Where can I find these blood boxes? 
Well, since you're such a good mother, I'll let you in on a super special exclusive deal. Just log into the Brand Clubby web portal and tell them I sent you by using code BLOODBOX6 for a free six-pack of delicious high B blood boxes for bats. Thanks, Brand Clubby! Quaker Oats today? <laughs> sure is, Meredith. Hmm, only the best. Only the best for our feed bags. Yeah, happy to be back in the feed bag. Always. Susie from Auckland, New Zealand asks, is Northeast the best direction for a burrow opening? That's an interesting question. I wonder why Northeast? I, I think we have to consider the shape of the earth when we're considering this question. For a southern hemisphere creature, I feel like north is a good direction for a burrow opening if you want some sun. Okay. If you're in the northern hemisphere, it would be south. So northeast in the southern hemisphere, if your burrow opening is facing northeast, you're getting morning sun. Got it. I guess it would depend on, too, if you're an animal that strategically places the openings for the sun or if you're strategically placing your opening towards like a body of water like in the case of like a little penguin sure their burrow openings face the water of the beach which probably isn't always going to be northeast facing so i guess it just depends it just feels like too specific of a question for too general a thing. Like, there's so many creatures that burrow. Right. There's so many other factors besides, you know, the sun. Sun, right. Like, um, I think what we need from you, Susie, is more information. Yes. So, a fish position is. Um... Not necessarily. <laughs> ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right. So our next feedback question comes from Anthony from Manhattan, and he wants to know, do centipedes get itchy? And I think we can assume in this case that we're talking about house centipedes. We're not talking about human centipedes, are we? No. Ew. Definitely not. Um, though I wouldn't put that past the submitter of this question. Yeah, do they get itchy? And in other words, are they like... If they have an itch, will they just use one of their many legs to scratch it? <laughs> I guess my answer would be, like, probably. Like, smoke them if you got them. Yeah. I feel like if they don't get itchy, then it's a waste. Right? Or maybe if you have an exoskeleton, do you get itchy? I don't know. I don't, I don't think so. I don't think you get itchy if you have an, itchy, if you have an exoskeleton. Yeah, I would say the same. Because... There's, there's like nothing to irritate it, really. Right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna say no. I'm gonna say that yeah. centipedes don't get itchy, and that that's kind of a waste. Right. I think I agree with you. So, Anthony, the answer is no. A fish ding, position. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Primrose from Boise, Idaho, asks: Do narwhal tusks test pH or just salination? Oh, Primrose. First of all, cool name. Second, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I definitely wouldn't put it past them because it seems like those tusks, or tusks, to be more accurate, are pretty sensitive. And I don't think that the scientific community really has the uh, narwhal tusk cracked. I don't think they know completely what its function is. I think there's still some... Um, work to be done in that area. So I would say, like, possibly. It's definitely not outside the realm of possibility. Yeah, I agree with that. I think that, you know, Nartooth technology is certainly more than we presently understand. I don't know that if you ask a narwhal what's the pH of this water, that they can be like 7.3. Right. But I think that the Tusk knows. Tusk always knows. Is that our fish position? The Tusk always knows? I think, yeah, we might not know, but the Tusk knows. All right. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, ding, ding. Great batch of questions, y'all. Yeah. 
thank you. Keep them coming, animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. We love to hear from you. Uh, that's it for this week, I guess. Close that barn door, baby. <laughs> Bye. Bye. <laughs> Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.